Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Hey, my name's Ty. I'm one of the pastors here. It's an absolute joy to be with each and every one of you. Are my lights on? What is it? Oh, cool. Hey, anyway, I was like, man, something feels weird in here. Is it just, oh, there it is. Hey, hey, guys. How's it going? Not doing that. Man, my thoughts be burning at the end of this thing. Hey, I'm Ty. I'm one of the pastors here. It's an absolute joy to be with each and every one of you. Um, I've got some announcements before we get into it. Number, man, I can't even see my notes now. <laughs> oh, no. Here we go. Uh, we got a Christmas Eve schedule. Might want to grab your phone out or maybe a notepad and pen or whatever you got to take notes. Uh, but here's our Christmas schedule. Uh, we're going to have two gatherings on Christmas Eve. That's Saturday the 24th. We'll be meeting at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. Uh, we'll have discipleship for the young ones from birth to two years old over in the Family Center. The rest of the kids will gather with us. It will be a candlelit service, and so it, uh, our candlelit gathering, so make sure you uh, join us for that. It'll be a lot of fun. The Sunday after that, the 25th, the day of Christmas, we will not have any gatherings here. So all of our gatherings will be on the Saturday night or the Saturday afternoon and not on Sunday morning. So if you show up on Christmas, Christmas Day on that Sunday. Guess who's going to be here? Just you. That'll be it. And then on January 1st, New Year's Day, we're just going to have one Sunday gathering. Not 9, not 6, but we'll have the 11 a.m. Got it? On January 1st, 11 a.m. You don't want to get up early on that day anyway, do you? Right. Okay. So be here at 11 a.m. only. Also, next announcement, we have registration for our next session of uh, cohorts. And so you'll see a list of cohorts on the screen up here. Cohorts are kind of our... Um, our groups of learning, like learning labs. We've got a refuge recovery group, grief recovery groups, learning to love and read your Bible for women, the meaning of marriage, growing your prayer life. So don't miss an opportunity to sign up for that. You'll see the blue, or the, actually the black QR code on the seat back pocket in front of you. Make sure you scan that with your phone. You can sign up or go to Centerpoint and sign up for that. And then lastly, uh, if you've been with us over this past little season, we have said that we're trying to raise $100,000 together. Uh, that will go beyond the walls of Grace Point Church. And so every dollar we raise for our year-end giving will go beyond the walls. And they're really going to go for disciple-making and church planning around the world. And we've told you throughout the weeks that we partner with an organization and several individuals to help make that happen. Uh, one of the organizations we partner with is Acts 29. And right now there are 800 Acts 29 churches globally. We are one of them. And so we help support them. Uh, Andrew Elder in Ireland, Karim over in Turkey, uh, and then also Carlos and Meyer, which we heard from last week in El Salvador. And then lastly, we partner with Arjuna, and Arjuna is in Vizag, uh, India, and he's doing a great work over there. And so I, I, I sent him a message, like, hey man, would you shoot us a video just to let us know what's going on there, give us a little bit of an update, or maybe inform us, because uh, for many of you, you might not know exactly the work going on over there. And so he sent me a video. I want to show it to you now to check out what Arjuna's doing there through Vision Nationals and through church planning and disciple making in India.
So that's a little view into what Arjuna has been doing over there. Uh, me, Pastor Tim, and my two oldest daughters got to go over there a handful of years ago, and it's just an amazing work that God is doing. Uh, and it's getting increasingly harder uh, for Christians over there, a little bit more persecution. Uh, it's harder to get in as Christians, and yet he's doing a great work through orphanages, through church planning, through training pastors, and through making disciples. So this is a great endeavor that we over here get to be involved in. And so I just want to draw all your attention now to that wall over there. You see that kind of piece of art on the wall. It's covered up by these little magnets. It's just one creative way we're doing uh, this giving. If you would, go over there at the end of the gathering, grab one of these magnets off. It has a dollar amount on there. Scan the QR code, take this home, pray for uh, this person or this organization, uh, and give this money. And listen, don't miss this. If we all do something together, we can make this happen. I know sometimes we sit back and hear things at church and we're like, yeah, someone else will do that. That's for somebody else. No, this is for all of us. Even if it's something little, if we work together, uh, together on this, we can make the goal happen. So don't miss that opportunity. Sound good? All right, let's do this together. Let's, let's also get started. Um, there are a lot of dangers in the world around us, like wrestling bears, watching Fast and the Furious movies, and the slippery slope of wearing Crocs. A lot of dangers out there. And so one I would really like to highlight this morning, it'd be watching documentaries. Documentaries, it's a very dangerous thing. You, you've seen documentaries before, right? There's a big resurgence in documentaries. There's, uh, remember the one Al Gore did, the guy who invented the internet, uh, Inconvenient Truth. There's that one, Making of the Murderer, Dahmer, Forks Over Nice, Sea Spiracy, Pepsi, Where Is My Jet, uh, Super Size Me. That was a fun one. And Angel and I, we just watched one last night on uh, Xanax. It was interesting. Uh, but here's the thing. Here's the dangerous part about uh, watching documentaries is this. You learn something. And when you learn something, like you've learned something, you watch a few documentaries, you're like, you know what? I better lock my doors. Someone wants to eat me out there. Uh, don't eat any fish out of the ocean because they contain about a two liters worth amount of plastics in them. Pepsi cannot be trusted with their advertisements. McDonald's is from the devil. Uh, the world is overheating. California will eventually be underwater. And here in Las Vegas, we will have uh, a beachside properties available for us very soon. Am I right? That's the thing about documentaries. You learn something. And the danger is when you learn something, you have two extremes that you can fall into when you learn something. The extreme number one is you just uh, dismiss it. You're like, eh, you know what? I've lived this way all of my life. I like to eat McDonald's cheeseburgers or whatever that may be. I like to pollute the environment. I don't really care about it. And so you just kind of just ignore it and move on. That's one extreme that you could, uh, you could view. Or the second one is you use the information to weaponize it against other people. You ever been on the receiving end of someone watching a documentary? <laughs> Loads of fun there. And so the idea is you get to weaponize it. You get to destroy everyone around you. You're walking into Smith's. You're going to like the, the meat department over there. And you're, you're just like, oh, cows, forgive us for all the murdering and all that. Or you see someone walk out of McDonald's with a filet of fish sandwich and you smack it out of their hand. Like, I can't believe you would eat that, you know, or whatever it is. Listen, here's the reality. They probably didn't watch the documentary. So here's what I would say to you on that. Cool your jets. <laughs> cool your jets. Because when you learn something new, sometimes you need to understand how to handle it in a wise way. And there may be times to bring it out in a very truthful and gentle way, right? 
Today, we're continuing our Advent series called Prepare the Way, and Advent simply means arrival. And when we talk about Advent, we're actually talking about two Advents. We're talking about the first Advent that happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus came, uh, baby in a manger, his first Advent. And we're also looking ahead at this second Advent that Jesus says he will return, he will restore and right all things. And so uh, over this series, we call it Prepare the Way. We've been looking through Luke chapter 1 and 2 and really been focusing on the first Advent of Jesus when he comes and gives us hope, gives us peace, gives us joy, salvation, and redemption. So we want to prepare the way for Jesus because God is coming. Our King has come and is to come. Today, we're going to look at the promise, and it's going to be the promise of a baby and his mother, Jesus and Mary. And so we're going to start all the way back in the beginning. So if you would, take out your Bible. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible here at Grace Point Church, we always say you're going to need a Bible. And so don't feel bad. Don't feel left out. We have free Bibles for you. We have them in English and Spanish at these tables and in the back as well. Please take one. It's our free gift to you. And if you have a smartphone, if you download an app called YouVersion, Y-O-U Version, uh, you can download that, click events, and then Grace Point Church will pop up and all of our notes are on there. We're going to start in Genesis 3. Let me kind of set the background of everything. God created everything. There was nothing. He created something out of nothing by the word of his voice. Uh, he also creates Adam and Eve. He creates a garden, a home, a place for them to thrive and to work and to be together. And all was right in the world. Uh, they could eat of any tree they want. He says, however, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat of that one. And so all of a sudden, Satan, form of a serpent, comes sliding up there and says, God's really not that good, and you guys should be like God. So you should go ahead and eat of that fruit, and that way you'll be God yourself. And they fell to the temptation. They sinned against God and ate, and their eyes were open. Now they see that they're naked, and they had shame, and they hid from God, and it was all bad. Now, God would have been a good, right, and perfect to right then and there, kill them, and send them straight to hell, but he doesn't. He uses this as an opportunity to save them to rescue them. And so in that moment, he's starting to hand out the punishments, but within the punishment of them sinning against him, he gives them a promise. And we pick up in Genesis 3.15. Are you there? Okay. Genesis 3.15 says this, I will put enmity between you, that he's talking to the snake right there, Satan, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is what's known as the early sighting of the gospel, the proto-evangelion is what it's called. Now, notice the word offspring in the text. What does offspring mean? What, is it, what does it imply offspring? A child, a birth, a baby, okay? So what he's saying right there, what God is saying that a child, a baby, someone who is born is going to come and save us from sin, from Satan, and from death itself. Sounds good, right? All right, let's fast forward in the story a little bit. Go to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, he's a prophet. He's a little bit uh, later on in the story. He's uh, several hundred years before Jesus actually comes. Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to get some details on this one, this baby, this child that's going to be born. So I want you to pay attention to the details. They're like little clues that's going to help us along the story. Therefore, so it's in Isaiah seven fourteen. You there? Okay. Therefore, the Lord himself... We'll give you a sign. So we need to be watching for a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, which is weird. 
virgin, virgin shall conceive. That's an odd statement. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so now we have a little bit of criteria. We have some details on the snakehead crusher, on the Messiah, on the promised one from Genesis 3.15. It's going to be a virgin birth. It's going to be a son. His name is going to be Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God is with us. God is with us. So let's fast forward several hundred years and to get to Luke chapter 1. That's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today. Luke chapter 1. So I'll give you a chance to get there. It's right in the beginning of your Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right there, the first four Gospels. Reminder from last week, we saw that before the Messiah comes, one must come before him. And so an angel uh, visited Zechariah and Elizabeth and promised them a son. And that son's name is going to be John. Okay, And so we, we hear about the promised one coming before the Messiah. And also we reminded last week, uh, who wrote the book of Luke? There you go, Luke. Uh, and remember, Luke was a, a detailed person. If you like uh, details, you love the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we know him as Dr. Luke. Uh, he was a prolific historian. There was a guy by the name of uh, Theophilus. Theophilus was a pretty well-known guy at the time, probably pretty wealthy in political circles and all that. Well, anyway, Theophilus, he gets word of the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. He gets really curious about it. And so he knows Dr. Luke. He knows Dr. Luke's a historian. He knows Dr. Luke's all about some details. And he pays Dr. Luke a large sum of money to go investigate the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, this whole story of Jesus. And so he commissions him to go, uh, to go investigate. So he, he pays Luke, and Luke goes. He, he starts to interview eyewitnesses of those who walked around with Jesus, those sp who spent time with Jesus. Uh, by that time, the gospel of Mark and Matthew are kind of circulating around. So Luke goes and studies Mark and Matthew. And we even believe that uh, Luke went to Mary and interviewed her and, and said, hey, Mary, what, what happened? What, what events took place? Tell me your story. And then we get to Luke chapter 1, verse 26, and he found out this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. All right, so what, what do we know about the angel Gabriel? Where did, where did we see him before? Last week, right? If you were here last week, we, we were last week. Some of you were traveling last week, but anyway, nonetheless, last week we saw that he met Zechariah and he met Elizabeth. Uh, now, what, what was one of the key features about Zechariah and, and Elizabeth? One of the things that kind of was odd about them having babies. Old. The Bible used a very nice term, advanced in years. <laughs> they were old, past baby-making Days And so uh, uh, Gabriel was before God and God said, go tell them this, that they're going to have a baby in their old age and they're going to name John, which John means uh, God is gracious. Uh, and so now notice there's a timestamp in verse 26. The timestamp is six months. That means Elizabeth has been pregnant for how long? Look at you Bible scholars. <laughs> six months. Now, to which city did Gabriel visit? It's right there in the text. What do we know about Nazareth? Well, if you look in the Old Testament, nothing. And really, you look early on in church history, not a whole lot is written about that as well. Why? Nazareth is a nowhere town. Maybe 100 people, 200 tops are there. It's actually a town between two cities. Uh, you kind of know what that's like, right? Any of you ever uh, driven to or drove to uh, California on the 15th? Uh, you, you ever seen the big thermometer in the desert? It, uh, what's that city called? Baker? Did you, did you know Google says it's the largest thermometer in the world? And who cares? 
Um, but here's the question. What do you do? In, and if you're from Baker, my apologies. But what do you do in Baker? You stop, you get gas, you get soda, you get chips, you use the restroom, and then you move on. I don't know if anyone actually like, hey, man, this, it's a destination city. Let's stop in Baker and like marvel at this, this thermometer. It's amazing. Uh, I don't think anyone does that, but that's the idea between Nazareth. It's a nowhere town. It's very small, very poor. Uh, this is where the angel appears, which is very interesting. The angel could appear in a palace to rich people in a big city, small town, nowheresville, poor people. I mean, uh, even one of Jesus' disciples, Nathaniel, remember what he said about it? He says this in John 1, 46. He says, Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's like almost like it has a bad reputation, like nothing good comes out of that place, like, you know? And so uh, who does the angel show up to at this time? Look at verse 27. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Remember the clue from Isaiah? What's one of the criteria for this, this one to be born? Okay, here, this meets the criteria. Now we're introduced to Joseph and Mary right here. So let's talk about Joseph. It says in the text that Joseph is part of King David's family line. This is important because the Old Testament says the promised one, the Messiah, will come from King David's line. Uh, if we know a little bit of history about Joseph, we believe him to be a carpenter. Uh, he's from this very, very poor town. Now let's pause real quick. I want you to get a mental image of Joseph in your mind. I want you to think through Joseph. What does Joseph, don't say it out loud, but what does Joseph look like in your mind? Got it? Okay. History tells us that he's about 13 to 16 years old. Is that what you pictured in your mind? Did you picture a young man who can barely grow a beard? Did you picture a young man that still has goose voice? You know what goose voice is, don't you? <laughs> did you? Did you picture a young man who couldn't get his camel's driver's license yet? Is, that, is this the one? He's probably wearing braces. We don't know. Did you picture that in your mind? I did not. But he's a young teenager. And then we see Mary right there. The name of the virgin's name is Mary. Uh, I, I'm sure they grew up knowing each other. It's a very small town. I'm not saying they're related, but they might have shown up at the same family reunion. We don't know. Uh, she is poor. Uh, the history tells us as well. She's probably illiterate. The only reason she would know the Bible is someone has told her about it. So she would know Old Testament stories and all that through just the retelling uh, of, of stories. History also tells us that she is between the ages of 12 and 14. Some would say even as young as 11. I'm like, whoa, but 12 and 14? Uh, and then Luke says right here in the text that she, they are betrothed. What does betrothed mean? Well, it's like engagement plus. And it's very formal. Uh, it's very binding. It lasted a year. There would be a ceremony anticipating the wedding. The parents and family would all be involved kind of signing off on this. They would probably get a rabbi or a priest in there to kind of bless it or whatever. During the year of being betrothed, they would be faithful to one another. That means they would be exclusive to one another, not dating anyone else. They would not live together, and they would not consummate the relationship. You know what I'm talking about? No sex. Make sure we understand. No sex. And after the year, they would have an official wedding. Uh, they'd move in together, and then they would consummate the marriage. You know what I'm talking about? Sex. Okay, make sure we got that. So they were betrothed. Betrothed was such a serious uh, agreement together. Uh, to, to break it would be considered divorce, and we read more about that in Matthew's Gospel. You can check that out. But I want you to see, do you have this scene set in your mind with these two young teenagers? 
the fate of the world and salvation is placed in two teenagers that are madly in love with one another. How could that go wrong, right? I mean, think back when you were a teenager between the ages of 12 and 16. How responsible were you? I mean, I couldn't be trusted with like a goldfish or a driver's license or anything, but like we're running with a sharp object. And these people, they're carrying the incarnate God. Like this is, this is a whole lot, whole lot uh, resting on them. Verse 28. And he came to her, this is the angel coming to Mary, says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled. Uh, if you remember last week, what does the, the Greek word trouble mean? Freaked out. <laughs> like, like, it's just like, it's like, whoa, there's an angel. Uh, greatly troubled at, at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And so now we see the angel talking to Mary. Notice it says favored twice in those verses. Favored one and found favor with God. What does that word favor mean? This is very important. It means grace. In keeping with the themes of the Bible, where does grace come from? Oh, that felt uncertain. Let's try that one more time. Keeping with the Bible, where does grace come from? God. And so the greeting from angel Gabriel, favored one and you have found favor, means God is giving you unmerited, undeserved love. His favor, his grace is upon you. Basically saying he is saving you. He's choosing you to be a recipient, a recipient of salvation. And so Mary was saved by grace. She was chosen by God to be a recipient of grace. The same for you, the same for me, the same for all of us. If you are in Christ, you have been chosen by God's good grace to save you because grace comes from God. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by what you have been saved? By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is what? The gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So for me as a Christian, I have received God's grace. He has favored me. If you are a Christian, you have received God's grace. He has favored you, and we don't deserve it. So the question is, why marry? And the answer is, because God is gracious. That's it. That's it. Some of you are like, oh, we're going to start talking about Mary Hang on, we're going to talk about her more in just a moment. Verse 31, he, starts, he keeps talking to her. He says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. What does this text remind you of, hint earlier? Isaiah, right? It reminds us of Isaiah. Uh, now, never in the history of the world has any woman had a child while she remained a virgin. This will be the first and I would say last time in history that's ever happened. And just like Zachariah and Elizabeth, Joseph and Mary do not get to name this baby boy. Who names the baby boy? God does. And his name is? What does Jesus mean? God saves. Uh, Jesus means Savior, God saves, or God saves us from sin. Now, for some of us, we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This doesn't make sense. I read Isaiah, and Isaiah, this kid's name's going to be Emmanuel. Now why is he being named Jesus? Well, one, that was common back then. But two, I think God is giving us great clues. What does Emmanuel mean? What does Jesus mean? How is God going to save us? I think he's giving us clues there. In order for God to save us, God must be with us. Let's keep going. Verse 32. Talking about this Jesus, this great Emmanuel, he will be great and he will be called Son of the Most High. It's big language right there. And the Lord God will give, you, give to, you, to him the throne of his father, David. Whew. 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Let's kind of look through this and break this down just a little bit. It says he's going to be named Son of the Most High, and in a few verses down, he's going to be named Son of God. What does that mean? I'll tell you what that means. That's not ordinary language right there. That's saying that this Son is going to be of the same substance of God. That means the Son is going to be divine. That means that Jesus, we saw that he's going to be born, so that means he's fully man, am I right? But we also see him being called the Son of God, Son of the Most High. That means he's going to be fully God as well, fully son, or fully uh, man and fully God as well. So this is, this is his divinity right here. Whatever the God the Father is eternally in his attributes, Jesus is the same. God the Father is working in history through God the Son, and God the Son is the second member of the Trinity, became uh, the man Jesus. So the Son of God, the same stuff and attributes as the Father, adds to himself humanity, meaning this. When Jesus has always existed, Jesus came, took a body, he became man. That means he added to himself. Did Jesus lose his God-likeness when he was on earth? No, he was still fully God, but then he added to himself humanity. Make sense? Not really, but kind of, sort of. <laughs> it's very confusing because he wasn't 50% God, 50% man. He was 100% God, 100% man, and sometimes that gets 100% confusing, but it's what our Bible shows us, this, this dualistic or, or this idea that we can hold two things at once. The text also says he's going to have the throne of David. So what's the clue right there? What does that mean about Jesus? He's going to be a what? A king. It says he will rule from David's throne. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament, a little bit of Old Testament history there. It's called the Davidic covenant. The promise was made that David would be a king, but that through his family line would come the king of kings, the king of all kings, the greatest king of all, who would rule and reign forever over all kings and all kingdoms. Now, how does this work? Jesus is from the family line of David, possibly through his mother, but we see that, we see that Joseph is from the line of David as well. But, but is Joseph really his father? He's not. He's not, because remember, this is a virgin birth. And so um, there's some debate there, but we believe that Mary is from the line of David as well. But nonetheless, as Joseph takes him, him in, that's adoption there, and so that that makes him a part of the Davidic line as well. And so he is going to be the king of kings. And then later on in the text, it says this. It says, Jesus will reign forever. It says his kingdom has no end. What does that mean? I mean, Jesus is eternal. Jesus has no beginning or end. Jesus didn't come into existence when he took a body. He's always existed. He just came and took a body. And so Jesus, there's no end or there's no beginning, there's no end. He's always been. He's, eternal. He's the eternal God, the second person of Trinity. Got it? This is, this, could you imagine Mary hearing this? I mean, like, like conceiving of a child uh, as a virgin, that's gonna be like, oh my gosh. But like, here's who this child is gonna be. It's God coming through you to the world to be the savior of the world. Imagine that. So how does she respond? Look at verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Uh-oh. Oh, no. You, you, you remember last week uh, when Gabriel went to Zechariah and told him all the things that was going to happen, like even in your old age, you're going to have a son. And what did Zechariah do? He asked a question. He, he doubted, and there was a punishment for that. What was Zechariah's punishment for doubting the angel? He was mute. He couldn't talk. He got the greatest news in the world, and he couldn't tell anyone about it. The irony there. Now, is this the same thing? Is, 
is Mary asking a question and doubting as well? And my answer is no. I think what Mary is doing is something different. Zechariah had doubt. Mary had curiosity. And curiosity is okay. I mean, think about it. She's like, she's trying to figure this out. She's trying to get this in her mind of like, okay, I, I'm, I'm tracking with you, but I'm a virgin. And I don't like, is there like, what, what, has to, what has to happen with this angel? I don't know what's like, how does this, how does this come about? Like, I think it's curiosity. Uh, when we doubt, doubt comes across as, as uh, unbelief. But curiosity, I'm going to argue that curiosity is a great thing. It's a great way to learn about our faith. Uh, if you're a Christian and you have questions, does that mean you're doubting and unbelieving and your salvation, is in, your salvation is in jeopardy? And the answer is no. What does it mean then? It means that you're human and you're curious and you're smart to ask questions. So yes, listen to me, Christians. We should be curious about our faith. We should be curious about our Bibles. Guess what? Our faith and our Bibles can handle our curiosity. But if you are doubting, doubting is a bit different. If you're doubting the Bible, you don't think it's true. You don't think Jesus was really born of a virgin. You don't think Jesus lived a sinless life. You don't believe Jesus died and actually came back to life. Listen to me, friends. That's called unbelief. And I would urge you strongly, don't stay there. Please don't. What do you need to do? You need to be like Mary and have some curiosity. Like, well, like I, maybe I don't understand the Bible. Maybe I don't understand how this could happen. Maybe I don't understand the supernatural acts of God. If that's the case, don't go to doubt and unbelief. Go to curiosity. Like, I've got to investigate this. I've got to research this. I've got to find this out. Come see me. I've got books upon books I can put in your hand to help you understand or to, to research, to be curious and, and figure this out. Now, Mary, I think, asked a fair question. How is this going to happen? I want to know how it's going to go down. And Gabriel responds, verse 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Very important. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Holy, I mean, he's completely set apart. I think this is the part where we get in where the virgin birth is very important because Jesus does not have a sin nature like the rest of us born with a sin nature. But basically he's saying that, Mary, you're going to become pregnant in a supernatural way. You will carry the incarnate God, God in a bod, the Messiah, the promised one, is coming through you. Now, what does, what does he mean by this? The Holy Spirit come upon you, overshadow you. Well, listen, there are no sexual overtones here. God is not in a sexual union with Mary as Mormon people would describe or Greek mythology would imply. Neither the Holy Spirit himself did not impregnate Mary like Muslims will imply or accuse us of as well. No, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is not an it, not a force, but the Holy Spirit we see throughout our Bible is a him is a person of the Trinity. And yet the Holy Spirit is also the power of God. Uh, let me show you one example of that, the power of God. Gen go back to Genesis chapter one, verse, uh, verse one. You might even know it, and we'll put it up on the screen as well. Uh, but it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. The earth was without for form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of God? Holy Spirit, right? It's Holy Spirit was hovering almost in this idea of overshadowing. Get it? The face of the water. And God said, let there be light. And what happened? 
there was light. There in the uncreated state, the universe is described as formless, empty, and in total darkness. And the Spirit of God hovered over the unformed creation, and God spoke and said, let there be light. And what happened? Lights came on. He spoke something out of nothing. That's the same situation going on right here. Something out of nothing. That's, I think that's the power of God in a supernatural way, creating conception within her. Now, when did it happen? Was it there when the angel was there? Or when the angel left? And did, I, we, we don't know. Um, nonetheless, Mary got pregnant in a supernatural way. Verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age, I think it's interesting, he has to add that dig in there, in her old age, has conceived, now it's a fact, uh, a, a son, and this is the sixth month uh, with her who was called barren. Now remember, uh, Mary or Elizabeth hid herself, and so this may be news to Mary, I don't know. Maybe she did know, uh, but um, what, the, what Gabriel is saying is like, look, this is what God is doing. God is doing supernatural things right now. This, this woman past her birthing prime is having a baby. And so you, which haven't even had sex yet, you, uh, you are going to conceive and have a child in this supernatural way, just showing uh, how this, this, is, this is going to happen. Now, how can a woman that is way advanced in years and then a young woman who has not had sex, how can, they, how can they have babies? It's impossible, right? I mean, like medically, physically, that's impossible. You would agree, yes? Next verse, verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. Do, do you believe that? Convincingly, do you believe that? Do you believe that in your life right now? Do you believe that God created everything you and I see, including you and I, out of nothing? God takes old people and makes babies through them. God takes a virgin and brings forth Jesus through her. God comes to us in the flesh and lives perfectly without any sin whatsoever. That Jesus comes to the cross, he dies, and then three days later comes back to life. That God can forgive our past, present, and future sin. That God can rescue us from sin, Satan, and death. That God hears and answers prayers, and God takes enemies and makes them families. For nothing will be impossible for God. Do you believe that? I mean, this is why we come here and we worship Jesus and Jesus alone. This is why we sing to Jesus and we sing to Jesus. This is why we pray to Jesus. This is why we love Jesus. This is why we, we gather together. This is why I am here and this is why you are here. And this is why we have a reason for hope. Because nothing is impossible with God. Do you believe that? If you believe that, then believe that God can change you. Believe that God can change your situation. Believe that God can change that person. Believe that God can change your kids. Believe that God can restore that marriage. Believe that God can help you or, or cause you to break that habit. Believe that God can make you brand new. Believe that. This is not just Bible garbly goo. This is not just fun preacher things to say is believe God. No, our Bibles tell us. Our Bibles inform us. Our Bibles command us to believe. Nothing's impossible with God. Look, we're in a season of hope. Just about verse 37, hold on to that. You, you have no reason to lose hope. You have no reason for despair. Believe that God does the impossible. Look, 
and marvel at Mary's faith. Look and marvel at her response in verse 38. It is a great example for us. And Mary said, after hearing all this, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You, you know what her response is called? Don't miss this. It's real, it's, this, is, this is like foundational stuff. You know what her response is called? You know what it's called? Faith. We talk a lot about faith. That right there is faith, that she believes it. And it's going to call her to risk everything. And in spite of risking everything, she is going to believe it to be true. I mean, I want you to imagine her life at this point. She probably has a dream. She probably has a plan for her life. And here's the plan, because we know it's part of it right before the angel showed up. She got betrothed to Joseph. And her plan for her life is, I'm going to get married to this guy. Uh, we're going to get us a place together. We're going to crank out some kids. We're going to raise the kids. Probably not going to leave about a two-mile radius, because that's what people didn't do. You know, back then, they didn't travel a whole lot. Uh, I'm going to watch these kids grow up. I'm going to go marry them off. I'm going to live my, the rest of my life out, and I'm going to die. So she has a plan for her life. And then what happens? God sends an angel, and basically God shows up. And God says, I have a different plan for you. You okay with that? If God shows up to you and says, I have a different plan for you. Oh, you'll shake your head yes in church, won't you? <laughs> yes, pastor. Yes, yes. And this plan is inconvenient. And this plan is going to cost you. This plan is going to ruin your reputation. This plan is going to put you on the run. You okay with that? Because imagine being a teenage girl who ends up pregnant, how society is going to see her when she's not married. Imagine how Joseph is going to look at her, and if we read the other gospel, it says, you know, Joseph was thinking about divorcing her, because he's like, oh, oh, this ain't my kid. This is somebody else's kid. Imagine that society and that culture back then when they see this pregnant teenager out of wedlock, like in that time period, they would take her out in the middle and make, a, make an example of her, either by beating her or killing her. So, I mean, this is a dangerous proposition. As a matter of fact, her reputation at this point is ruined. She's going to go and tell people, yeah, uh, God came to me, and that's why I'm pregnant. And they're like, sure, 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 right. It's going to put them on the run. They're going to kind of be like fugitives. This was not the plan for her life. But then she looks at the angel and says, I am the Lord's servant. So my question for us is, do we have the same response to God in life? You know, here's our response sometimes as a Christian. If I were to say, hey, are you the Lord's servant? Yes, I have trusted Jesus. That's not what I asked. I didn't ask you if you were saved. Thanks be to God. But because you're saved, do you position yourself in light, life that you are the servant of God? Do you know what the servant of God means? Servant is where we get the word slave. In American terms, it's a tough word to understand. Biblical terms is a proper term. To where I put myself under you, Lord. And your will is now my will. Your wants are now my wants. Your desires are my desires. I serve you and you alone. That means intentionally with my time, with my energy, with my efforts, with my entire life, I am your servant. I read through your word. And whatever your word is saying, I want to do what you tell me to do. I, I want to know your will and live that out. Question, are you a servant of the Lord? I'm not asking if you're saved. That's great. Thanks be to God. But if you are saved, by default, we call Jesus what? Lord. And that means you are my, you're my leader. I follow you to the end. I go where you go. I, I, I love like you love, the last, least, and the lost. 
I give and I sacrifice of my life. This is Mary. Man, what, what an example to follow right here. Mary is amazing. She, and like her whole life is about to get wrecked. And she looks, yes, whatever you want, Lord. Jesus is coming. The advent of Jesus is coming. This poor, young, teenage girl, Mary, nowhere. That's our text today. But I want to attempt to answer one question before we finish today. One question. I'm going to try my best, work through the text, answer one question. And here's the question. There's something about Mary. What is it? There's something about Mary. What is it? And here's my answer. Mary should not be the object of our faith, but she should be our example of faith. I'm going to say that one more time. Stay with me. Don't leave me yet. Mary should be the object of our faith, but she should, uh, she should not be our object of faith, but she should be our example of faith. Unfortunately, Mary has been elevated to a place, to an unbiblical place. We love Mary. We love Mary. We do not pray to her. We do not worship her. We do not expect her to do anything we Christians can't do. Why am I bringing this up? Because our text warrants it today. It's talking about Mary. Go, go back to verse 28. Go back to verse 28. The angel come to her. This is very... Uh, this is where it kind of opens up. Angel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Remember, what did I say the word favor meant? Mary is full of grace. You ever heard that statement before? By a show of hands, by a show of hands. Anyone here, I want you to keep them up. You're in a safe place. By a show of hands, Anyone uh, here grow up in a Catholic home? Raise your hand. Anyone grow up around Catholic tradition or anything like that? Any of you recovering Catholics? <laughs> kind of Catholic? Still Catholic? <laughs> what does this make you think when you hear full of grace? It makes you think this probably. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Some of you started twitching. Like, <laughs> hey, 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 you, hey, you Protestants, hey, you Baptists out there, cool your jets. Cool you, hold, hold on. <laughs> I'm, I'm, we're going we're gonna to walk through this together. I meant that jokingly. Some of you are like, oh, I can't believe you just told me that. Like, Hang on. Some of you hear that. We're not praying to Mary. I was just showing an example. Hang on a second. <laughs> But one of the key words from the text that is repeated and stands out as much controversy around is this word favor. Uh, go a little Bible nerd on you. One of the Latin translations of the Bible early on was called the Vulgate. You ever heard of the Vulgate? It was, it was translated by a guy by the name of Jerome. And he gets through this Latin phrase. I don't know Latin. I'm barely working through English right now, but I'm going to butcher this for all you Latin people out there. Shoot me an email. Uh, <laughs> Gradia plena. I'm sure I just butchered that. Anyway, uh, when Jerome, uh, <laughs> when Jerome uh, translated that, he wrote uh, instead of favor, full of grace. He's kind of right because favor does mean grace, but uh, most scholars would say he took that just a little too far. 
Because if we're not careful, when we think of full of grace, we think Mary originally had grace or some kind of special grace was bestowed to her. And now Mary is a dispenser of grace. Is Mary a dispenser of grace? Well, the answer is no. Uh, Raymond Brown, the acknowledged dean of Catholic New Testament scholars said this, full of grace is too strong of a rendering of that text. For if Luke, Dr. Luke, wanted, which remember Dr. Luke is like a prolific historian and very detailed. If Luke wanted to say this, he would use the phrase that he used in the book of Acts. So Luke wrote Luke and Luke wrote the book of Acts. He would use that the same uh, full of grace he used for Stephen in Acts 6, 8. So when he used that word favor, he means grace. If he wanted to say that she was full of favor or full of grace, he would use the same thing he said in Acts 6. Make sense? I do not want to lose you. So she is not full of grace as a dispenser of God's grace. So that means you don't pray for Mary for grace. You go get grace where Mary got her grace from. And where did Mary get her grace from? God. Mary got grace. She doesn't give grace. She received grace from God as we can receive grace from God as she did as well. Mary is like us as well. And I know for some of you, this is really going to be abrasive, but I'm going to say it. Mary is a sinner like the rest of us in need of God's grace. Well, some of you are like, whoa, 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 I thought Mary was sinless. Where did the whole Mary sinlessness come from? I'll tell you. In 1854, when Pius IX declared the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, some of you Catholic, when you do your Catholic school, you remember that? Immaculate Conception teaches that from the first moment of her conception, so Mary's conception, the blessed Virgin Mary was, by the singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, and in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of mankind, kept free from the stain of original sin. Basically what they're saying is back in 1854, they said they had a doctrine that says Mary uh, avoided original sin, and so she was born sinless, which this is... This is uh, this is not, that's not correct. Why? Because later on in the book of Luke, you see her going to the temple and offering a sacrifice. And what do you offer sacrifice for? Yeah. And some, some would even say that Virgin Mary, like her, like her mom had a virgin birth for her and that's what, that's how she got born. But that's, that's, that's nowhere. And then the whole, there's the idea of like, well, wait a minute, I thought Mary was sinless. I also thought she was a perpetual virgin. You know what perpetual virgin means, right? That means she never had sex. Uh, but our Bible tells us something different. You know, you know why? Because Jesus had half brothers and sisters, right? And, and you know where babies come from, right? Sex. I don't know, I'm getting a nickel every time I say that word. They told me, I don't know. Anyway, and so, and so uh, that, that means she was not a perpetual virgin virgin. Other question is, well, I thought we were supposed to pray to Mary. Can't she help us out or can she do anything on our behalf? And the answer is no. She, she cannot. She really can't. Where did this concept come from? I'll tell you. 1954, Pope Pius XII defined the coronation of Mary as the queen of heaven, meaning that God chose her to be the mother of Christ, because he willed her to have a unique and exceptional role in salvation as the second Eve associated with the second Adam. Okay, who's the second Adam? Jesus. And so, uh, what the Catholic doctrine is is well, if we have a second Adam and Jesus, then we might as well have a second Eve, and the second Eve is going to be Mary. And so, like Mary, mother, and Jesus, son, they're the ones going to rule all of creation. 
And these changes actually inform actual daily practices of devout Catholics. And if you, uh, some Catholic people will actually put uh, Mary, like statues of Mary in their homes or in their front lawns. In the country, everybody puts one in their front lawn. Anyway, and so as recent as the catechisms of 19 and 94, Mary's referred to as the mother of the Christian church, the queen of heaven, the exemplar of true Christianity, and the mediatrix between the church uh, and God. Now, big word right there. What does mediatrix mean? That she mediates for us. What does it mean to mediate for us? That means she is a middle person we go to in order to talk to God. Well, our Bibles tell us something completely different. If we look in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, it says, For there is one God, and there is what? One mediator between God and man. And who is it? The man, Christ Jesus. There's one, and it's Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. Mary didn't die on the cross, but gave himself as a ransom, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And so this kind of knocks that argument out. And there's another argument that says, well, if Mary is the mother of Jesus, I love this argument. Mary is the mother of Jesus. And so if you pray to Mary and Mary tells Jesus to do it, well, the Bible says that you have to obey your parents and Jesus got to obey her. That one just falls apart. <laughs> Because there's one mediator and he's God, and so that just falls apart. Even in, hist- in the Catholic Church doctrine and history, that a pope calls Mary the co-redemptor. There, there's a sense of that she uh, redeems us as well. But our Bibles tell us something different. John 14, 6, you might know this one. Jesus said uh, to him, I am the way and the truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through He could have said me and my mama. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't. Could you imagine that trans? Me and my mama. <laughs> Mama's boy. Acts 4.11 says this. Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no, I mean, this is good to clear. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's only one name that saves us, and the name is? Jesus. What about, what about, what about the fiat of Mary? We're getting deep in some Catholic stuff here. The fiat of Mary, what does the fiat mean to let it be or to be? What does that even mean? Uh, there, there's an idea that the angel in our text today, in verse 38, came to Mary and said, uh, I'm going to do all these things. And she gave him the power to make it happen. Uh, and it's what we see in Genesis as well. Remember in Genesis where uh, uh, God said, let there be light? It's the idea that she is, is, is authoritative and she's giving permission to let it be. It's called the fiat of Mary. But Mary was not giving the angel permission any more than the nothingness in the beginning gave God permission to create it into something. She's not giving permission like uh, dead Lazarus was not giving Jesus permission to raise him from the grave. See, Mary's importance begins and ends with Jesus. Just like our importance begins and ends with Jesus. She has faith in Jesus. She needed Jesus to save her. Her obedience was to carry Jesus. She loved and worshiped Jesus. I could only imagine Mary looking at us being like, stop it, (laughs) like quit it, don't do this. But listen to me, don't throw Mary away. You know that's Jesus' mama, right? I love my mama, don't you be talking bad about my mama. Just because other people have painted her in this way, don't be upset with her. Because She was an obedient child of God. She faithfully carried the Savior. From her body, the Savior come. Do you know what that means? 
She has, Jesus has her cheekbones, maybe. He has her eyes. He has her hair. I mean, I don't know, but he has maybe the features of Mary. And so don't throw Mary away. Earlier, I said that documentaries are dangerous because we get new information. You just got a lot of new information. And like watching a documentary, there are two extremes in which you can fall into right now. Extreme number one, you can say, I don't believe any of it. I like my traditions. I like the way I've been doing life so far. I really don't care what the Bible says, X, Y, Z. If that is you, then I want to challenge you to read your Bible and study this out for yourself. It's a good thing. It's a, it's a, it's a, a blessing to us when we hear something taught to go to the Bible and find out for ourselves. That way you can own your faith and have your own convictions. And so if that is you that says, I don't want to believe any, I really don't believe that, go to the Bible. I want you to be like Mary. Be curious and go to the Bible. On the other extreme, some of you are here to use this and you're going to weaponize this, and Christmas is coming, and you're getting ready to go back to your Catholic family, and you're going to be the Catholic slayer this Christmas. <laughs> pew, 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 pew! Down with Mary, all of you, is what you're going to do. <laughs> Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Listen, when your family, that's important. They, they, didn't, they didn't hear this message. They didn't hear it. You can share it with them. They didn't hear it. When they bring up Mary, this is a great opportunity for you to help direct them to Jesus because that's what Mary is doing in the text. When they say something like, hey, we need to pray to Mary, you know, you know like, hey, you know what? Let's, let's pray to Jesus. Jesus is our mediator. Let's, you don't have to like defend it. Like, no, Jesus is our mediator. Let's, let's, let's talk to him about it. When they talk about Mary saving us, like, you know what? Jesus is the one who died on the cross for us. And so let, let's just focus on him this season because that's the, that's the point of Advent is to look to Jesus to look at all he has done. And so we are thankful for Mary. She is not the object of our worship, yet she's a great example for us of what it means to have faith in Jesus. She had faith. She submitted to God. Will we have faith like her and submit to God as his servants as well? Now, what about Jesus? Jesus is coming. Jesus is about to be born. What's going to happen through all those details? We're going to find out in the next couple of weeks. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word, and thank you so much, Jesus, for you. We are grateful for just your love and your kindness and your mercy towards us. We are grateful that you use people. You use us. You use the humble. You use the lowly. We see Mary and Joseph humble and lowly that you would use for this, just, this marvelous endeavor to come and to be our Savior. So Jesus, thank you. You are Emmanuel with us. You are God who saves Father, I pray for my, my brothers and sisters, my friends right now who have really been struggling with the Mary situation. Uh, I, I pray, God, that you would use your word and by your spirit to course correct and to allow Mary to be an opportunity for them to look to you, Jesus. I pray in this Advent season we wouldn't get wrapped up in the spirit of Christmas. We would get wrapped up in what the spirit is doing what the Spirit has done. I pray that you would help us to focus our gaze, our time, our attention on you, Jesus. May it be for our joy, may it be for our good, and God, may it be for your glory and your glory alone. We pray in Christ's name, amen.